Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Cal Kalia Yang at Anoka County Library, Rum River. Cal Kalia Yang is among American memoirist and teacher, and a leading voice for one of Minnesota's fastest growing ethnic groups. Her moving 2008 memoir, The Late Homecomer, chronicles the story of her own family and hundreds like them who made the harrowing trek from their native Laos to refugee camps in Thailand and ultimately to the United States in the wake of the Vietnam War. The late homecomer won Yang the 2009 Minnesota Book Award for Memoir and Creative Nonfiction, as well as that year's Reader's Choice Award, the first ever title to win two awards. The National Endowment for the Arts recently singled out the memoir for a coveted spot on its big read roster and it remains Minnesota publisher Coffeehouse Press's single best-selling title to date. Yang turns the spotlight on the trials and travails of her father, B. Yang, in her 2016 follow-up, The Song Poet. The Pioneer Press praised it as inventive and touching, an elegantly written, moving testament to so many aspects of the human experience. I'll start out by doing a reading and then we'll just open up for a conversation, a Q&A. Because um, I'm here for you and I want to give you an opportunity to engage with me. But it's really an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, exciting to be part of the kickoff of a wonderful season. So if I suck, you don't have to come back. <laughs> so this book was written very quickly. The first draft came out in two months. Because after The Late Homecomer came out, I embarked on what I thought would be a short book tour that just never ended. You know, the first three years after the publication of the book, I was doing talks, three talks a day, four talks a day. I remember one of my birthday, December 17. I, I celebrated my birthday five times, you know? <laughs> and at the, end of the, um, at the end of the day, they had a huge cake with my picture on it, and I had to slice my own neck to feed the kids. <laughs> so. So there was no time to write. And it took me a long time. To, I, I kept on talking about this book that I would write if I could write. And then I fell in love, and I got married. And my husband said, no more talking until the book is done. So he sent me to the basement for two months. <laughs> <coughs> and everything came gushing out. So I've been carrying this story around for a long time. 
This book was written for the suns that rise on the horizons we've yet to see, for my brothers and sisters, my sons and daughters, for my father Mbiya, who sings his lonely song so that we may hear the trembling of the still fluttering heart. It begins with an epigraph. Gutia is, in the words of Ralph Ellison on American Blues, an impulse to keep the painful details and episodes of a brutal experience alive in one's aching consciousness, to finger its jagged grain and to transcend it, not by the consolation of philosophy, but by squeezing from it a near tragic, near cosmic lyricism. As a form, the blues is an autobiographical chronicle of personal catastrophe expressed lyrically. Gutierrez songs can be duets, the voices of fathers and daughters coming together, different verses within the same song, stanzas in the same poem. I'll tell you a little bit about the origins of the book. Um, my father had lost his job. We were living here in Andover, actually not too far away from here at all. And he'd spent all this time looking out the windows. So one day I went to him and I said, Daddy, why did you become a song poet? I was hoping to distract my father. He looked at me and he said, you know, when I was a little boy, there were very few people to say beautiful things to me. I used to go from the house of one neighbor to the next, collecting the beautiful things that people had to say to each other. By myself, I whispered the words. They escaped on a sigh and a song was born. And I said, Daddy, that's beautiful. And then I said, Daddy, maybe that's the beginning of my next book. And he looked at me and he said, maybe it's the end. And then he said, nobody wants to read a book about a man like me. When you create books about men like Barack Obama written by themselves, my daddy loves Barack Obama. <laughs> um, and so, so he said nobody would read a book about men like him. But all of my life, I've seen, I've known, I've loved men like my father. When I was going to school at Columbia University and my mom and dad couldn't come to visit me and I missed my father so terribly, I used to go on these long walks up and down Broadway and I would find men like my father coming out of the bathroom, of the, the restaurant basements onto Broadway with the same heavy shoulder, the same rough hands. And so in my heart, a book was coming together. We were in the middle of the economic depression. My mom and dad were scared to go places because they didn't have the money for the gas prices. So I wanted to write a book that would capture the, the, the spirit of the depression, but also talk about men like my father because it is men like my father who give birth to daughters like me. And so my daddy says I'm super stubborn, that I'm like a dog after the scent of a bone. I don't <laughs> let go. Um, and so the, the song poet was born. Um, right now, it's a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. It is a finalist for the Minnesota Book Award. We have been long listed for a, a, a cash prize. I can't even say the name, so I won't say it. Um, but it's, it's exciting because every step of the way, my father believes a little bit more. And maybe that's what this whole endeavor is about, getting him to believe in the country that has raised me. So this is from track one. It's written like, um, like an album. So instead of chapters, I have tracks, which as a writer is really exciting because it allows me to play with the form. Instead of having straight cr chronological narrative, I can, I can begin to flex it. So like, for example, track four is an entire love song. So uh, it gives me, opens the door wide for repetition for verse. Um, but this is from track one. I didn't have very many people around to say beautiful things to me. I used to go from the house of one neighbor to the next, collecting the beautiful things people had to say to each other. 
By myself, I whisper the words to comfort my heart. One day, the words escaped on a sigh and a song was born. No one looked at a calendar or wrote down the date of my birth. I only know what my mother remembered and what my brothers have told me. My brothers say that I was born at the beginning of 1958 in the midst of the Laotian Civil War. In the bigger cities of Long Praban, Sabanaket, and Vientian, there were battles and debates between battles of the royal members of the royal Lao government and coalition groups of communist revolutionaries. On the world stage, Laos had become a faraway place for the superpowers of the Cold War to test their might against each other. But on the high mountains of Pumbia, in the province of Xiangkhuang, in the village of Pukhao, where I was born, the Hmong continued the life we knew. In 1958, according to my mother, the Hmong still believed that the young would outlive the old. Mothers and fathers continued to give birth to children. The living called out to the dead. Shoots of green rice were harvested, were planted along the sides of steep hills and fertile valleys. Harvests were had. In 1958, according to my mother, my father was thinning, but he continued his long shaman's trek across the mountaintops to different villages to do healing ceremonies for those who were sick, weary of soul, or those whose spirits were in need of a call to come home. In 1958, my father believed that there was still life in him. My brothers and my mother tell me that I was a harvest baby, an early birth in the new year. The grain sheds were full to the top with rice and unshelled corn. Dried buffalo jerky hung from the rafters of the houses. Big clay jars full of fermented pork and greens rested in the corners of houses. The temperature had dropped and the white frost covered the green of the mountain foliage in a thin layer each morning. The wind had grown cold and it swept through the village cooling the uneven mountain terrain so that children with bare feet complained unceasingly when they traveled the distance away from the house to pee or to poop. At each house, a fire burned around the clock. Mother sat in open doorways sewing French coins to Hmong embroidered shirts, pants, sashes, and skirts. Fathers checked on cows, pigs, and chickens to ensure that there would be enough meat for the ancestral feast and the streams of visitors. The young gathered around their elders and whispered wishes for new clothes to be made for the New Year celebrations, new cloth balls to be fashioned so they could be tossed in the courtship rituals, new musical instruments to be crafted so that they could be played in the village circles, and new gutsieplang, love songs to be taught so they could be sung at the festivities. The whole village was deep in preparation for the beginning of a new year, except my mother, who could barely walk with the strength of my struggles inside of her. My mother's pregnancy had been difficult. Her daughters-in-law watched as she struggled to keep up with the younger women along the road to the garden and moved clumsily around the hard-packed floor of our communal home. By the time my mother had me, she had nine children already. I would have been the 10th if the little girl with the pale skin and stray hair had not died. As it was, the adults knew that I would be her ninth and her final child. My mother was in her late 40s. She could not sit for long in the open doorway, preparing clothes for her children for the new year. Her back ached after just a few minutes. She could not bend down to stoke the fire close to the ground. She knelt by the fire, a short, stout woman, big belly before her, a bamboo fanning her hands, leaning awkwardly, fanning the flickering flames. Legs widespread, she went through the days, a hand on her back, heaving great long sighs with each step she took. My mother was weak and without energy during the long months it took for me to grow within her belly. There were nights when she woke up shivering because she had kicked the harsh woolen blanket off in the sweat of a moment and then grown too weak and exhausted to pull it back up. 
for the last few months of her pregnancy. She woke up each morning in sweat as cold as the mountain stream. The chilly air traveled through the split bamboo walls. The hand of morning stretched its fingers through vivid dreams of dense jungle laying with the calls of wild animals. In the gray, my mother made out the shallow breathing of my father beside her and saw how his body sank in with the exhalation of each breath. My father had been a slender man for most of his life, but in old age, he was little more than thin muscle clinging to bones. He slept with, a, he slept with their youngest child, a two-year-old boy cuddled to his side. My mother struggled off the bed as quietly as she could, her wide feet on the smooth, cold earth. She took in the cool mountain air, exhausted already by the thought of the journey to the bathroom. When my mother first felt me drop low in her belly, she knew I had made the decision to venture from the clouds and into the world. And her exhaustion grew into a state of anxiousness. As a medicine woman, a healer, and a shaman, she had seen many old mothers who could not muster the energy to push their babies from their bodies. She had seen so many blue babies, colored like the monsoon sky, who never got to breathe the air of earth. My mother did not want this to happen to her youngest child, when she felt the familiar liquid rush down her legs and a pressure build low in her back, she told her daughters-in-law to stand aside. She crouched on her knees, legs widespread on a bamboo mat. She placed both hands on her thighs, looked straight ahead. My mother breathed the air of earth into her body and pushed as hard as she could so that I would know the air that waited for me at the gate of life. She did not stop until she could feel my wet, round head against her fingers. When my loud cries split the quiet of the early morning and called in the day with more gusto than the family rooster's crow, her daughters-in-law rushed in close to help my mother. I was passed between different hands. My brother's wives crooned and they shushed me. They helped each other bathe me in the old plastic tub by the light of the family's fire ring. The women wrapped me up in a warm blanket and they handed me to my mother. My mother held me in her arms, safe against her body as she had her children and would her grandchildren to come. I'm almost two and I've learned how to walk slowly by myself. I'm a sturdy balancing act on the dirt floor of our house. There is the dark outline of a man sitting in the late afternoon shadows. A fire burns in the center of the room, warming the cold air filtering through the open doorway. His body is turned toward the flames of the fire pit. There's a bamboo basket of dried bark by his side. His hands are busy rolling out the long stretch of bark, twisting and turning it into rope. The doorway is an uneven rectangle of light. Outside, there are the sounds of children playing, laughing, and talking, peals of delight and joy rising in rhythmic, predictable intervals. I want to join them. I make my way carefully to the open door. I put both my hands on the, on the door's light frame, and I try and I try to lift one leg high enough to cross the door's ledge to the other side. I try hard to raise the leg higher and higher, but it grows too heavy, and it falls down in a swoosh. I look at the man by the fire for help. I don't understand that my father has grown weak with old age and the endless coughing that brings his shoulders high and shakes them. I do not know that it will only be months before my father will go to bed and not get up again. I look at the man and then point to the open doorway there. I can see who my big, bro my big brother by two years playing with a spinning top. I will remember for the rest of my life the voice that carried his words to me, the only words I have directly from my father.
My little boy, come to your father. My, my son, come to me. Your father is making a rope for you to tie around the little chicken. My little son, don't cry. The only good thing about my father's death is that he did not see the land of the million elephants fall to the roar of the iron birds that drop balls of fire from the sky. My father died in 1960 before our village of Pukhau was turned into a military prisoner base by the Americans. My father did not live to see his son yearn for a father or struggle to become one. All of my life, my dad would say to me, at my best and at my worst, I am only the father I imagined for himself. My father loves language. They are his, his air, his oxygen, the very breath that he breathes. Because he never had enough words from his father, he showered me with them. And like all children, I grew heavy in the rainfall of his words. Even after I became a writer, when I was asked, who were the great writers that influenced me? I'd answer Robert Frost, Louise Erdrich, who I love. You know, I would talk about Hajin. I would talk about Laura Ingalls Wilder. It's taken me a long time to learn and to reflect and to understand that my first teacher into writing was my father, Mbiya. He is the poet of my life. So the song poet is in many ways my coming into the world and saying, this is my biggest literary influence. My daddy says that when he dies, he wants it written on his, on his gravestone, that he gave birth to seven children and that we became good people. We were his gifts to the world. I have a stubborn heart. I know that before and after us, it was his songs, it was his art, it was his music that he's gifted the world with. The Late Homecomer was a love letter to my, to my grandma the song poet is a love song to my father. And with that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Kalkalia Yang and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what Kao Kalia Yang's father's reaction was to the song poet. When I was writing the book, I told my dad, Daddy, I'm writing this book. Do you want to know what it's about? He'd look at me and then he'd shake his head and he'd say to me, as an artist, I hate it when people interfere with my process. I won't do that to you. My father said, I've heard too many great projects die and talk. Well, talk when you're through with your writing when the thing will live in the world on its own. In April, my dad, um, I, April of last year, there was an event and it was the first time I was reading the book and my dad was in the audience. It was about an audience of 300. It became more than a conversation between me and my readers. It was a conversation between my father and me. He sat there and he just kept on crying. But a lot has happened to my dad. He has not had an easy life. And so with these nominations, he tells me one step at a time, he always says to me, steady your heart, little one, steady your heart. I'm excited. It's a great thing to be a young writer, to see your name up there with all of the writers who, who you've read, you love, you respect. And every step of the way, we're making a little bit of home history. It's never been done before. 
And so we get a little bit closer. My grandma used to say that at the end of a long life, we don't get our own books, that if we're any good at all, we got one line in the bigger book of humanity. Recently at a talk, it was the first time that I had ever talked publicly, publicly with my father. It happened about two weeks ago. My dad, um, somebody asked him about the power of stories and whether he believed that the story of his life would change other people's lives. And my dad said words that I think it really hurts a daughter to hear. He said that in the life that he's lived, he's had very little power. That with the men with the guns, he had to bow down to live. And now with the men with power, he had to put his hands to work. And now his hands are useless. So all he has is the beating heart of him. I think that's part of the reason why I do the work that I do. I love, I love fairy tales. I love happy endings. That's what I would give all my readers if I could. But in the world that we live in, the fairy tales are found in the tiny moments along the way in the life that I've lived with my father. He's made the world beautiful for me. You know, when I was a little kid in Bambina refugee camp, 400 acres surrounded by men with guns, where Hmong people got food three days out of the week. My daddy used to carry me on his shoulders and we'd, beneath the tall tr trees and we'd see sunlight filter on my skin. My dad used to point and say, the sun loves you. It's dancing on your skin. You know, he took me to the tops of the trees and he would tell me, one day your little hand and your feet will journey to the places your father has never seen. My father makes the world beautiful for me. And while his life has taught him fear, especially his life without a father, I'm standing on the shoulder of his. That bent back wasn't just meant by the work that he's done or the guns pointed at him. It was meant by the very weight of my life, that of my siblings. There's less to be afraid of when you know that there's a man who will catch you every time you fall. And so that's why I write, I believe in the power of stories. I think that they have the ability to change human lives. They have changed my own. They have made possible for me a reality I couldn't have imagined. Our next question comes from a young audience member wondering what inspires Yang's writing. So when I was a kid, I didn't talk in English. I was what was called a selective mute. At, at home in Hmong, I talk all the time. I talk mom and dad's ears off. But at school, I didn't talk because my, dad go, my daddy would go to work and then he'd come back and he'd say, today the boss said that I wasn't there to talk to people, that I was there to talk to the machines. And there was a very clear memory. I was, I was seven and my mom and I were at Kmart and my mom was looking for light bulbs, but she didn't have the words and so she pointed to the ceiling and she said, I'm looking for the thing that makes the world shiny. My mother carries a thick accent. And the clerk walked away from her and she didn't come back. And I was, I was seven and my mom is 19 years older than me, so she was 26 at, a t at the time. I'm 36 today. My mother was 10 years younger than I stand before you. And I thought she was incredibly beautiful and incredibly brave. And to watch my brave mother shamed. My, my child's heart couldn't overcome it. And so I decided that the next day I wasn't going to talk anymore. I wasn't going to talk in this language, in this world that did not need to hear from my mom and my dad. And so I became a selective mute. But I was only a kid and the words had to go somewhere. And at school I had all of these teachers who wanted me to read and write things. And so I used to write for them. All the words I wouldn't speak to the world, I would write it. And my teachers would put cross things out and put a big old question mark. And I always understood that question to mean, what do you mean to say? 
So you send a little girl chasing after meaning you create a writer in the process. But growing up, I always thought I was going to become a doctor because that's what my community said, that's what my daddy said, that we needed doctors and lawyers. Doctors heal what's broken in the human body. And so many of the human bodies I know are broken. That lawyers protect the rights that we've never had enough of. So my older sister, who was much smarter than I was in school, said she was going to become a lawyer. And so it fell upon me to, say, to whisper that I would one day become a doctor. But I was in college, 2003. I was only a few months from graduating. My grandma fell down in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. And I told her to get up, and she said that she couldn't get up. She said that I had to understand that there were people who loved her before me. That a long time ago, she had a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters and that they were waiting for her somewhere in the house of her youth, in the Hmong mountain of her heart. I learned how to read and how to write in English because I wanted to write my grandma love letters. When she died, uh, she had 13 suitcases that she carried from the house of one, one child to the next because none of them had a house with mm -hmm. a room for her. But one of the 13 suitcases was full of all of the letters that I've written her ever since I was your age. And some of the letters my grandma had read so many times with her hands, because my grandma had never been to school. She didn't know how to read or write. But with her hands, she wiped off the words. The ink was gone, but you could still see, feel the impression I'd made on the page. And so I started my first book as my final love letter to my grandma, I thought. Very dramatic. It was going to be the final one. Little did I know then that I would still write to her every day in my journal. You know, <laughs> that when I'm scared, when I'm unsure of where to go, it is still her voice that I close my eyes and call forth. But that's how I wrote the first book, because of love. I love, it's hard for me to put it in the past tense. I love my grandmother, and by writing, I could spend more time with her. And a page wasn't enough, five pages wasn't enough, 50 pages wasn't enough, and so it became 1,000 pages in the end. And what became my first book is 277 out of one, those 1,000 pages written. The second book, it's also a love letter to my dad. As a writer, I wanted to grow, so I wanted to try on a different perspective. 36-year-old female, I get it, but how do, you be, uh, how, how do you take on the voice of a 60-year-old male? So I, you know, when you're a writer, you don't just write so you can tell stories. You want to push the boundaries of a language. You want to grow that language, push the edges of meaning. And that's what this book allowed me to do, to flex some of my writing muscles and garner new ones, but also to write to my father. Because at the end of the day, all the people we love, all they have left, all they can give us is the strength and the wisdom of their stories. Things come and things go. It is their stories in our hearts, in our, in our heads, that stay and that live on. My little brother, Max, has never met my grandma. You know, he never, um, he doesn't have a grandma and a grandpa. He never had one. And so I remember when Max was in school, the teacher would say, act like your teacher, and he would go down on the ground and say, like, really straight. And the teacher would say, no, I want you to act like an elderly person. And Max would have to say, I hope that my grandma and grandpas, all, wherever they are, that they're, that they're being very still that they're lying in the ground where they should be. But through my book, Max has gone to know my grandma, know some of the wisdom she left me with, know what it was like, I think, to feel my lips on grandma's skin. 
it would never be her lips on grandma, his lips on grandma's skin, but he can feel mine. I became a writer because there's no other way I can envision my way into the world we live in. The world hits and it hits hard. And it's very hard for me to let it go. It's very hard for me to understand the meaning of a moment without reflection on my side. As a writer of nonfiction, I can reflect on the, on the meaning that we do in every day, the everyday moments that comprise a life. It's incredibly fruitful, it's rewarding, and it's lovely to go to places, libraries like this, and speak to folk like all of you, folk who are looking not to be persuaded, but to, to, to understand deeper the human story. That means that I don't fail often, right? Because I'm not trying to get you to agree or disagree with me. I just want to deepen your understanding of my story and your own and this world that we share, this life that we call ours. That is it. That is all. And so there are so many reasons to continue. That's, that's why I'm a writer. But I think you're awesome for being here. <laughs> you're awesome for being here. And I hope I say something useful to you. That many years from now, when you think back to Ngokalia Ya, or you think back to this moment right here, right now, that the words will be important and helpful. My grandma used to say that surrounded by wisdom, without the experience to back it up, we don't know how to use it. Many years from now, you'll become a very experienced man. But today, you're a boy, and it's a lovely thing to be. This question is about the reaction of Yang's mother and siblings to her latest book. My siblings are brave. I think, how many of you have read the book? Can I see a, 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 the song? Oh, quite a few of you have. I think my brother, Tzu, is the bravest of all because I write about Tzu and his experiences at Andover High School. When I was writing, I asked him, Tzu, do you want to read what I'm writing? And he said, um, no, because you've lived it with me. And I said, can I, can I publish it? And he said, I've never had any room to hide. I think for a lot of poor kids, you don't have much room to hide, you know? I remember going to Carleton College for the first time and I had a little hole in my jacket and I held the hole the whole time in my fist because I didn't want anybody to see, I didn't want anybody to know that I didn't have money for a new jacket. That's not how I wanted to start my life there because instead of buying me a new jacket, my mom and dad had cleared their bank account to buy me a laptop so I could study, so I could write. I'm tired of holding the hole in my pocket. My brother is tired of holding the hole in his pocket. It is hard to live in a world without understanding on your side. My aunts and my uncles, all of our elders are tired. People say, what are you people doing here? And they don't have the words to say anything. Everybody's been waiting. Everybody's so eager for the story to be told, for the story to be out in the open. We have nothing to be ashamed of. In this way, I have a very brave team. And I think that's why I'm able to do the work that I do, because they're so brave and because they're so courageous. When I was a little girl, I, I thought my older sister Dao had so much power over me because she decided what classes I took at school. She decided where I was going to go to school because mom and dad didn't know how to do the paperwork, so it fell upon her to do it. And then I became an older sister, and all the younger ones started coming, and they just had so much to so much for me to do all the time. And I realized that we garner power when we take on responsibility. They have gifted me with so much responsibility. But they know what team I play on. 
They know where I want to be buried when my time is through. And these things are enough for them. This audience member wonders why Yang decided to divide her book into two parts. Side A, which is her father's voice, and side B, which is her own voice. Yes, it's a duet. I envisioned it as, a, as, a, as an opportunity to duet with him, to sing with him. When I was a kid, I saw, I was watching the Grammys, and I saw, um, I saw a duet, a very special duet between, and not, the names are escaping me, but between a father and a daughter. Her father was long dead, but they were singing together. Yeah, Nat King, King, King Cole, exactly, and the Natalie. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to do that with my dad. And so side B allowed me that gift. And side B also allowed me to take the world right here to America. I wanted to write a timely book because yes, it was about the economic depression, but I also knew that the talk of refugees and immigrants was coming our way. And I wanted to respond to the times. I think you cannot be an artist, you cannot be in this world relevant if you're not writing of the things that are happening. And so that was how I could do that part. This question is whether the section in her book from the Native American's point of view is a true story. That is a true thing, yes. I do creative nonfiction, and so I am bound to the truth. So yes, at an event uh, in St. Cloud, a Native American man talked about the zoo that he knew, living on the reservation. And that zoo sounded so much like my zoo. They had the same name, of course, you know. It was his zoo, and I, and I clarify in the writing. So this is, um, this is from that part, and then I'll go into it so we're all on the same page. It's from track seven, The Sun Must Rise, S-O-N. Where's the moon? Where's the sun? I am blinded by the light of the bombs. At an event, I heard a Native American man tell a story about a young man named Sue. The man said, this boy Sue comes up to the reservation. He's a Hmong kid. We don't see them much up there. A few days in, my son comes and tells me Sue is cool. What is cool anymore? These young folks, they take a word and they change its meaning and they use it left and right. So I don't know what cool is. I see no harm in cool, so I don't say anything much about it. Sue has been with us for a few weeks and it is dog hunting season. My son really likes Sue. He tells me one day, Dad, Sue really wants to go dog hunting with us this year. You mind if I take him along? What's a father to say? I say, okay. Sue comes along and he's this young man, heavy on the walk, quiet at our first meeting. He shakes my hand and I shake his hand. My grandson wants to come along. Our tradition says if a boy wants to journey with his father and his grandfather, then it is their job to take him along. So we got to the woods. The little boy runs ahead with his father. Sue is walking between us through the trees. I am an old man. I run out of breath. I slow down. I lose sight of my son and grandson. I never lose sight of Sue. The distance between us does not change. I realize at some point that Sue is keeping my pace, waiting for me. Cool, I think to myself. We're on the canoe in the lake and my son is spotting docks left and right. I am sitting, calm on the water, staring at the sky, staring at the sky in the liquid depths around us. My grandson, he's only seven. He sits and he plays with the water, runs his hand into its silvery surface and he leans in. I get worried and I'm about to yell for him to be careful. Then I notice the whole time. Sue has a hand on the boy's shirt. Sue's hold is not so tight that the boy even notices in his play, but it is tight enough that a grandfather can sit back, 
marvel at the picture of the clouds in the mirror of the water. Cool is a word I still do not use easily or well. I worry that I misuse it. It has been many months now since I've known Sue. I love that boy. His tread is heavy on the earth, full of the weight of too much going on, but his hold is gentle. His step is firm. It does not dig into the surface of the earth. It turns the ground firmer. Sue is a good man. I'm sad to know that there are systems on earth, powerful and mighty systems, that can overlook the coolness of such a young man as Sue. What kind of a world are we living in when a man's deeds, the goodness of Tzu, cannot translate into a resume or a job? Tzu was sent up to the reservation because he did not fit into the system. I question, the system, I question that system here and now. I share the story with our father because he has a Tzu too. His Tzu's coolness too cannot be translated into good grades, a strong resume, or a good job. The Tzu the Native American man is talking about could easily be ours. And that's how I used to segue into the narrative of my Tzu. So if there's a little confusion because they have the same name. My Tzu would never finish a can of Coke from nearby who saved me some, even to this day. My Tzu never finishes an egg roll. He saves me half, even to this day. And nobody sees this. When the world gets really hard for me and it gets very heavy for me, and sometimes it does, my Tzu says to me, haters are going to hate. Let it roll down your back. It's hard, you know. I have a wonderful father who I know in a heartbeat would die for me because he almost did last year, you know. I have a husband who I, who I share three children with who loves me. But there's nobody like my Sue. And when this Native American man talked of his Sue, I felt my own. And so that's how I chose to begin the, the, the chapter about the, the sun must rise. I think one of the things that I've learned in the last few years of life is that we really fight to survive. We fight to survive for others, but we fight to survive for ourselves, human beings. The good or bad, right or wrong. And the road is never straight. But no matter how far we stray, we stray so that we can live. We can survive. It's a humbling realization. But it is what I've realized. An audience member follows up, inquiring about how Yang's brother is doing today. He's okay. He's coming back. He is the most, he's the dream uncle. If you could dream up an uncle. My kids would say, we want a tent today, and a tent emerges in the middle of the living room. <laughs> um, never mind the cleanup. Never mind how long it takes, you know. I have a three-year-old daughter, and she says, Uncle Tzu, I feel so bad today. I think the only thing that will make me feel better is a little bit of sugar on my tongue. <laughs> and lo and behold, a spoonful of sugar comes her way. So he is a dream uncle. And he does a wonderful job by us. My hope and my dream for him and for men of color all over this country like him is that they find a reason and a will to live for themselves, not for those who love them that they can imagine themselves into the future, not as a, a heavy burden on anybody else, but as a strong man that they were meant to be. That's my hope and my dream. He's alive. I wouldn't want to live in a world without the Zeus of the world. I have more courage to live because of him. 
This question is what advice Kalkalia Yang would give to young Hmong writers. Do not edit yourself with doubt. Don't. The more you write, the more choices you have on the page, the easier it is to find the good lines. Okay? Not everything you write would deserve to be published. So you gotta write a lot if you wanna have, if you wanna increase your odds, just write a lot. So many young writers are, um, they, the best way to procrastinate is to worry about the world's response. Don't worry about how the world respond. Write first with that aching heart. I want to tell you that to be a writer is not an easy thing. To be to survive as an artist necessitates that we fight even when our voices are not fighting voices, even when our bodies are not fighting bodies. Because the thing that the artist does is we live openly, we live vulnerably so others can see. Every time you write, no matter what you write about, you are writing about the human experience of that thing. The pulse that beats is the same across races, across ages, across time. I want to tell you that there are going to be so many reasons and so many places where, where you're going to feel, you're going to see, you're going to know there's a wall in your way. You're not going to be able to scale every wall, but you can on, dig underneath it. You can walk around it. Give yourself options. That's all, writerism. That's all writers and artists do. We give ourselves options, right? If you're going into a sentence, know that you can stop two words in and that you can take the sentence here, there, and here. That's all it is. To get people to believe you, you have to believe yourself. Authority, that word author, right? Comes from the word authority. Authority is earned. Do your homework. Be brave. You cannot survive on the page if you're not willing to put your heart on each and every single line. This question asker wonders if Yang still has friends and family in Laos and if she ever would like to return. In 2000, I went to Thailand as a part of a global development um, program at Carleton College, but then the Twin Towers fell. And so Hmong people, Hmong U.S., Hmong Americans went missing along the borders. And so the State Department said no Hmong citizens should go across the river until Laos said it was unsafe. But I wanted to go. And everywhere I went in Thailand, everybody kept on saying that I look Japanese. They'd say, what are you? And I said, I'm Hmong. And they're like, you don't look like Hmong from the hills. You look Japanese or you look Chinese. It wouldn't be until they see me eat or, or, or if I was walking really fast and they'd say, you're an American. You're too sloppy. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, and so I crossed the Mekong River for a day as a Japanese student. Across at the place where my mom and dad had crossed into Thailand. My mother, a long time ago, had buried these photos of her mother and herself and her brothers in this bamboo patch. And she's, it's her goal to one day go back and look for it. I spent all day looking. I found nothing. Uh, seven years ago, my older sister was living in, in Cambodia. She and her husband were living in Cambodia, and then they, they went to Thailand so that she could give birth to their firstborn, mom and dad's first grandchild. And they bought plane tickets for mom and dad to return to Thailand. And of course, then I thought, then they have to go to Laos, because my dad wants to find the mountain where his father is buried, because my mother has brothers and sisters waiting for her. At the Lom Prabang airport, they let my, my mom go through, they let my sister go through, my younger sister go through, and then they stopped my father and they said, if you walk beyond this, we're not gonna guarantee your safety. If you exit the airport, the chances of you dying are as high as those of you living. 
And my mom, her brothers and sisters were waiting for, their, for her right there, but she couldn't go. So they hiked up the fares for my mom and dad, the one-way tickets for them to go back to Thailand, just for them. Somewhere in Laos, there's a library that was built by a very wealthy couple. I wrote the dedication to that library for the spirit of my grandmother who never learned how to read or write so that the children of Laos will one day stand in the places where their grandparents walked and tell their stories. I want to go to that library. I have a friend who is a, who's a white guy. He carried copies of the late homecomer with him to every national library in Laos and stuck a copy on the shelves. <laughs> um, I don't know if they'll ever, I don't know if um, people read them, but I know that they're there. Um, and then on this most recent trip, he found copies of the late homecomer. Very similar copies, but a smaller packaging um, all over the streets of Long Prabang. So, so in many ways, our stories have returned and our bodies are yearning to follow. I want to take my mom and my dad there. I envision that in the next year, I'll start on a book called Return of the Refugees, which is an examination of motherhood and very much my mother's story. And, and, and I want to take her back. I want to take her back to the place where her mother was buried. You know, my mom was only 16 when she left her mother to walk toward this life with us. I cannot dream of a better mother. In 16 years, I don't know how my grandma did it, but she taught my mother everything that she needed in order to love me. And when I was a little kid, mom and I would watch Channel 2 and we'd see these things like the White Cliffs of Dover and I'd say to mom, mommy, one day I'm going to take you to see that. And she would say, yes, you are Minai. And then she always said, daughters don't have to keep the promises that they make to their mothers. But I want to. So I want to take my mom back to Laos. I want to take her to England so we can watch the White Cliffs of Dover so that she can see that in the world that we live in, in the life that we've been given, there are promises, some of them, that we can keep for each other. So yes, simple answer, yes. I want to I go back. Another audience member asks if Yang's children are old enough to show an interest in writing. I have a three-year-old daughter, and she wants to be a writer, a professor, like her mom, but she wants to participate in makeup competitions <laughs> <laughs> because of YouTube. And she, she wants to become a great chef. So she, she's, she's quite young, um, but I know that she's bright. I know that she's bright because she challenges me all the time. Because the other day I was folding laundry and she messed them up and I said, Sheng Yang, you, you messed up mommy's laundry. And she said, use your imagination, mommy. Nothing, <laughs> nothing is messed up. <laughs> so I imagine that she would probably do as I've done for my parents, the thing that I never imagined. And that through her, I will understand the world as I never knew it. Because that's the gift that children can give. That's the gift that we give when we allow other people into our lives and we go on their journeys with them, understanding that it is their journeys. And then the boys are 17. I have identical twin boys who are 17 months old. These days, all they like to do is, um, is party, dance. <laughs> they love to dance. You turn on the music and they'll start breaking out into moves. That's their number one. 
but I don't have the, quite the body for the dancers, so I don't know how the genetics will pan out for them. <laughs> the last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Yang's mother and grandmother ever saw each other again after they were separated. No. In, 19, um, in 1990, my grandma and Laos died. There was a phone call, and that's how my mom found out. So my mother carries a memory of her mother walking away. Every few nights, she wakes up still from that nightmare of her walking away with my father. And she's angry, you know, in the dreams, she wants to know why she doesn't stop. She wants to know why she doesn't just tell my father to wait. She wants to know why she doesn't just run and hold her close one last time before it's forever. But I'm 36 years old. And every time I see her, I remember to hold her close. There are so many things in life that you don't know. You know, I didn't know that my, I've lived all of my life without knowing that grandma. All I know is I have her jawbone. It wasn't, you know, I don't have her long neck, unfortunately, you know, or her height, but I have her jawbone. It wasn't until I had my daughter and I heard my mother say, that I realized what I lived my life without, all the love. Every time my mother is with my daughter, I see what could have been if the world were a different place. If bullets could re-enter guns, if bombs could unexplode and float back into space. And my heart hurts. And I think ultimately that is why I write, that is why I come here before all of you. Because I know that all of us who live, we know what it is like to hurt. And it is only our words and our tears and our touches that heal. That's why I go into the world. Thank you for coming here to join me. That wraps up our Anoka County Library Rum River event with Kao Kalia Yang. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Chris Pavone at Washington County Library RH Stafford on Monday, March 6th. Chris Pavone burst onto the mystery and thriller scene in 2012 with The Expats, a chart-topping spy novel. His newest New York Times bestseller, The Travelers, centers around a travel writer who finds himself caught in a web of international intrigue. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just made too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, Around Town Agency, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.